What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is legendary singer-songwriter Eric Anderson. Eric, you have a new song, Dangerland. Tell us about it. I think it pretty much speaks for itself. It's about um, school shootings, mass shootings. I, uh, I recorded it with David Amram last May, and uh, we did it in one take. And... You live in the Netherlands. You talk about David Amram, who still lives, I think, near Woodstock. Uh, how did you actually do it? Went into a studio. He sat at a piano, and I got me in a booth, and I just read the lyric. I read the narrative, and he uh, played piano. And this was where? Uh, Shelter Shelter Island Studio in New York. I see, and. You are doing some promotion on this. How are you getting the word out? I put it on Facebook and nobody looked at it. You put it on Facebook and nobody looked at it, is what you said. Maybe 20 people. So what are you doing to get people to look at it? Well, the guy I work with, the, the, guy, not, not, the guy who does the, uh, the visuals, Brendan Fisheries in Toronto, he's like this sort of young wizard who... I gave him the images, he put it together, and um, he's, put, he put a, he's putting some stuff on TikTok and putting some teasers up, like one verse, to try to get some interest. I mean, it's growing. I mean, it's like we've had about 300 hits in about 13 days. But, I mean, it's not a thing you can say you like, you know, like somebody's dog or somebody's anniversary or somebody's birthday. Yeah, I like this, I like that. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't watch a video about mass shootings and school shootings and say, I like it. So I don't know if people know how to respond, but if they watch it, they don't, uh, they don't respond. Oh, well, it's very impactful. What inspired you to weigh in on this now? 
Well, I'm probably one of the only artists who's doing anything, weighing in on these kinds of things. I mean, I'm doing... I'm doing a thing like this. I'm working on a thing about militias, private armies in America. Um, yeah, I'm working on a bunch of things that I guess nobody, you know, things that are only in the news or newspapers or television, you know, things like that. Artists just don't, it's too much to wrap their heads around. You can't, I mean, it's not topical in the normal sense where you write a topical song and and then the next day something else happens, you know. When people first started writing topical songs in the village, like people like Phil Oaks or um, Tom Paxton, those people, I mean, if something happened, you had to wait till Walter Cronkite come on and the next night for a half-hour newscast or something, or get some people got the New York Times, maybe, and uh, you could write a protest song about a specific event. Now, man, all, I mean, this shit has hit the fan. I mean, it's 24-hour, 24-7 news CNN, I mean, it just, it's nonstop. So for a writer, how do you, how do you put your, where do you, where do you grab something and say, I'm going to write a protest song? So these songs that I'm doing, they're not really protest songs. They're more like descriptions of diseases, long-term descriptions. You know, they're not dealing with an event at the moment. And, and of course, since I, we recorded this in May, many, many mass shootings of, happened and many school shootings have happened i think there's over 170 now since the new year there's been 170 mass shootings when it's over three or four people in the united states and to what degree does music today have power to make change i don't know you tell me well the biggest challenge is being heard irrelevant of the content of the music tell me more about the private militias just getting back to uh, Dangerland, this thing, it's on YouTube. Um, what, I'm from, I was from Buffalo, New York, and we rolled into town the day after the wall, there was a, a shooting at the um, top supermarket, like about, you know, four blocks away from where I was doing a gig. And we'd been driving around doing some shows, and uh, I, I, I went over there actually to pick up an honorary doctorate. And we got some gigs around that. We played. And it was the first time I went to the States where I felt this palpable, like something could happen to anybody. It wasn't like going, this was last spring. It wasn't the feeling where you could, you know, these things happen to somebody else, like somebody died or somebody, something happened to them. But it's not going to happen to me. But the, this time when I went over, I had, you know, man, this stuff is could just happen to you know, I just, it was in the air, something I never felt before coming to the States. And uh, and then we rolled into town, man, the day after this thing at the, the tops happened. And then the Evaldi thing. So last thing, so we put some of this stuff together and made a video. And that's what I'm doing. I'm making videos. And um, since then, how many, look what's happened. It's like, it's a no-brainer. Write a song about this. I mean, it's going to be happening next week, the week after that, you know. But it's not a people, uh, it's not a thing people on Facebook or Instagram really want to see. Who wants to hear about this stuff? I mean, they, it's all, but anyway, somebody's got to take a look at it. And uh, so I, it was me. So I was the one that got tapped. <laughs> I was the shoulder that got tapped on. The militia thing is along the same lines, you know, using images and talking about, uh, 
being summoned by, you know, like a, a leader who snaps his fingers and everybody's ready to go. Uh, little private armies. So it's a, it's a, it's a work about that. So we're, we're working on this now. I've already done the, I've, I've already, uh, recorded the track. We just have to make the, uh, the video with this, my, this guy, Brendan. He's got the images I sent. And so we, we so we're doing it. We're putting this, these kind of things together. Um, but I don't know if anybody's going to look at it, want to see it. If they're interested. Who knows? But it's something I just feel you got, I, I had to do. And, uh, but I don't think, no, I don't know any artists that are, that dare delve into these, <laughs> these, um, matters. So we'll see what happens. Okay. You have an, uh, a, quite a perspective having been in music and being very aware 60 plus years ago. What changed in America? You're asking me? I'm asking you. What do you think? I think it was when the baby boomers, after the 60s were over, became very focused on money. And then when Reagan legitimized greed, they sort of lost all of their 60s values. That's the key element in my book. And then income inequality after that. Well, it's a complex um, question. The stuff that I think it just became more evident after the 60s, this stuff was always going on. Since Mellon, Carnegie, Rockefeller, this stuff's always been going on. I, I think people in the 60s, you know, they had this, maybe they had this hope. You know, I was, I mean, I was in the first handful of songwriters looking at this stuff, you know, in the village. I mean, it gave birth to this, what the so-called singer-songwriter movement. You know, and those people, maybe you might have um, seven people, five people writing, writing about 500,000 things. Now you got 500,000 singer-songwriters, and it's hard to even write about five things. <laughs> That's well, well put. So you get, this, you get this dream in the 60s, and you think things are going to happen. And then you find out that the good guys lost, you know, but it was a, a beautiful idea, but it, uh, it just didn't fly. And, uh, you know, it just, it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. You know, it's not the country. Well, first of all, America is many countries. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different kinds. There's a, a lot of Americas happening in one country and there always have been and um getting trying to get everybody to agree on anything is very difficult i mean the italians don't agree on anything and they're just one people in america you got a country of immigrants and every wave of immigrants hated the next wave every wave of immigrants that came i don't know if you ever read jews jews without money by Mark, michael golden it's a brilliant book about the Lower East Side, about how people lived in their cage, neighborhood cages. It's an absolutely incredible book. And uh, every time a new, you know, if you if you went around the corner, you went, went to the wrong block, they'd kick the shit out of you. And I mean, the Italians would get you. If they didn't, then the Irish would get you. And I mean, and the whole thing was built up where you, when you 
got to America, you dropped everything at the door. You know, you dropped the language, you dropped the culture, you dropped, you're going to, you know, Lucy, you're going to be an American. Don't talk Italian. Don't talk about this. Don't talk about it. You're going to learn to be an American. And that's the way that was where things took a left turn. So a lot of beautiful cultural stuff just got thrown by the, you know, cast aside because people wanted their kids to conform and to belong and to be part of the big, big dream. So, you know, so this splintering and all this and strange um, false consensus of what it is to be this or be that, um, it was a dangerous thing. It was a big weapon. It was a club, you know, promulgated by Hollywood, you know, white fences and cute mothers at the door with aprons and, you know, it's, it's, and, and no one can, no one could possibly, not all people could fit into this thing. So I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if the 60s, something happened afterwards or is always this way. It's a tough, it's a tough question. Well, you were born in 43, so you're really a child in the 50s. What were the 50s like? You're 10 years older than I am. Were they as straight-laced and repressed and mindless as they're depicted? Well, you had to have something to compare it to. I mean, you didn't. You can just walk around in your saddle shoes and say, hmm. No, but I had an inkling something was a little wrong. I mean, of course I did. You know, that's so I gravitated to things. I mean, I when I was 13, I went to see Elvis Presley. My my parents took me to see Miles Davis when I was like uh, 15. So I mean, I, I I got to see some stuff, but you know, you knew something something was in the air. And I think it was just through reading and through films and stuff that I realized there was another world out there that had nothing to do with what I was looking at. And that's the world I wanted to find, and that's the world I wanted to see, and that's the world I wanted to live in. And that's why people jump ship, and they, you know, um, that was the th- that, that, you know, that that was the thing that informed the sixties. Some people were braver than others. Some people, you know, cut a new path. Coming from the beats, you know, the beat the beat thing started it. In the village and in San Francisco. So, uh, and the hippies, you know, the beats were like, the beats were like hippies, but hippies didn't read books. But it was a movement and uh, a literary movement. And I, that, and people, at least I got, I picked up on it. And I think people like Bob, you know, Dylan and Lou Reed and people like that picked up on it. A few people. So, Growing up uh, in the Buffalo area, what'd your father do for a living? Well, my father was, he was a metal a metallurgical engineer who went to Case Western Reserve and he dealt uh, with nuclear energy projects. I don't know how specific you want to get. As specific as you do. <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, he, uh, he worked with a, he worked with a, a metal called zirconium. Zirconium was a metal, and he worked with people, he worked with nuclear energy, nuclear reactors, submarines, all kinds of things that dealt with nuclear reactors. Zirconium was this metal that was a coat around uranium. It was like, it was like a shaft, something went around it. And so the uranium would heat up 
and it was surrounded by water. And nuclear energy is basically steam, you know, like that makes electricity. That's all it is, really. So you got it. You've got nuclear, nuclear energy, nuclear rods, and you got water, and it makes steam. But the problem is uh, uranium. It, it oxidizes. It rusts. So zirconium was an element of metal that, that that allowed the electrons to pass through to you know create a nuclear uh, fission, and but it wouldn't rust. So the zirconium allowed the activity to go on without having the nuclear rods rusting or oxidizing. And then in between those things were carbon rods that would absorb electrons that could make, because, you know, splitting atoms, electrons went flying all over the place looking for other atoms to split. So they had, carb they had carbon rods. It's very simple, actually. And then you had carbon rods in the, in the mix, too, that could absorb electrons, and th therefore you could control the heat. How hot you wanted it, so it and so it didn't explode like a, like a nuclear bomb. So that's the kind of thing he was into, what he was involved with. So in the late fifties and early sixties, although we had fear of uh, the H and A bombs, this was really cutting edge stuff. But by the late seventies, there was a reaction, the China syndrome. What'd your father think about all that? About what? China syndrome? The people who f suddenly were against nuclear power. Well, I mean, uh, these are things they probably read about in the newspapers. There were protest marches and whatnot. Um, it didn't affect him directly. Nobody laid siege to the company or surrounded the surrounded them where they had to build a moat around it or something like that. They, you know, they carried on business and they still do today to some degree. I mean, there's People like my father that are working in France, you know, Germany, all over the all over the world, in China, Russia, everywhere. Any anybody who deals with nuclear energy deals with this. But protest wise, I don't know. I mean, did you ever argue with your father about nuclear energy? Were you against nuclear power? My parents were Republicans, so I didn't. I didn't have any kind of, I didn't take any kind of stance on this at all. In fact, I wasn't really aware of the, uh, of these movements, which is kind of the insular value of being in a suburb, I guess. You, know, you get insulated from all this stuff. So how many kids in the family? Whose family? Your family, growing up. Well, there was a, there was a mother, father, and two, two, two brothers. So where are you in the hierarchy of the three kids? Well, well, there are two brothers, me and another brother. Okay, are you the older or the younger? I'm the young. I mean, I'm the older. Why? And what? What kind of kid were you growing up? Were you like a member of the group? Were you outside a group? Were you the leader? Well, man, I was on the student council. I was vice president of a class one year, and then I, I lost interest in all that stuff. And I, um, like I said, I was, I was doing a lot of extracurricular reading, but I did, I work in a restaurant and I worked in a record store, make money to buy records. I, uh, played some sports, you know, I was on a, played tennis, I was on a football team for a while and played baseball, you know, the usual stuff, whatever a kid does. 
So you were aware at the birth of rock and roll. What was that like? Well, it was pretty uh, earth shattering, you know. I mean, I, I my parents were listening to people like Ray Noble. My father like Ray Noble, Al Boldy, you know, the very thought of you. Those I don't know how familiar with this stuff. Uh, you know, Benny Goodman, these kind of big band, big bands used to play at this. You know, I mean, he he. When he went to when he went to high school, one weekend Count Basie played the high school in Cleveland, and the other weekend Duke Ellington played. So he was he was very exposed to this you know big band music in America. He loved music. Rock and roll was uh, was the way was the vehicle that taught us how to learn three chords on a guitar. So we all started with rock and roll, and. Uh, Buddy Holly and uh, the Everly Brothers came to my high school to play. I saw them. I saw Elvis perform at the Memorial Auditorium in a gold suit. So it was, uh, and I, I learned to start playing guitar and, you know, was, had a few, I had a, you know, a couple folk groups, had a rock group, you know, uh, but every kid does that, I think, in the 50s. So... What was it like seeing Elvis and Buddy Holly? Well, you were, you knew you were in the presence of, I mean, I didn't get to see Duke Ellington in person. I didn't get to see Glenn Miller. I didn't get to see Benny Goodman. They were all on records. I mean, I never got to see them. But they were great. You, you know, you, you were in the presence of a, a great musical explosion. It was, like, it was like being parachuted into a volcano. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, you graduate from high school, you go to college. What was college like? Well, I was in pre-med. I'd I'd been working at a cancer institute in Buffalo, Roswell Park for a couple of years. And um, under the auspices of this Hungarian doctor who lived next door to me, we became friends and he got me interested in research. So I was going to, I was interested in becoming a research scientist. And uh, so I was in the pre-med and, and, and college. But then I started getting into music and um, more and more. And I started reading stuff that wasn't part of the curriculum. And um, and then I was in a motorcycle fraternity, which I quit very soon. I wasn't in it for very long. When they... Uh, they were rushing Jewish kids, and they just, when they, they said, "Come to the kitchen, I want to want to show you our ovens." That's I, I just packed a bag and I booked out of there. I never went back again, but I still kept the motorcycle. So we were doing things like jumping freights. It was, it was um, Lake Geneva. It was a Hobart College was on the lake, and the freight trains would go by, and we were jumping freights. And then came the unfortunate day when. Um, a few of us went and ripped up the president's lawn with our motorcycles and fucked up the shrubs and just just really didn't care. So I was expelled. expelled. A few of us were expelled. And it's funny, uh, just to conclude this story, um, a year ago, I got an email from the dean of the college. Uh, but parent, before I say, when I got expelled, I went directly to San Francisco because I wanted to I wanted to meet the beats or see the beat scene. So I had a plan. But uh, a year ago, I got this email saying they wanted to give me an honorary doctorate at this college. And I thought it was a hoax. <laughs> I said, they got to be fucking crazy. So my wife, who is a doc, she is a PhD, actually, and uh, she's a scientist. Um, she said, maybe read this again. And the guy wrote me again. He says, you know, we want to give you this PhD. And the guy turned out to be great, this, this dean. He just turned out to be amazing. But he wrote, he said, we want to give you this PhD in humanities and literature because you are the most accomplished dropout the school has ever seen in 200-year history of its 200-year history. So I went there and I, I got the... Uh, wore a cap and gown and I got a scroll and my wife and I, our biggest fear was in within, you know, hidden within the scroll would be some kind of invoice or bill for like gar- a gardening bill of like $80,000 or something for what we did to the, to the, to the lawn of the president. But people remembered it. And I mean, they're still talking about it. But it was extraordinary. I mean, winning the lottery, all the lotteries would be probably greater the chances than me getting this. And this college was? This is Hobart College. It's a private school in Geneva, New York. And Inga, my wife, said, you know, we, we tell people uh, 
on some, she sings in my group when we play, we play. She says, you know, what, what took, she was a little kind of mock irritated. She says, what took me like five years to get a PhD in, in the Netherlands took you five minutes. <laughs> she didn't like that so much, but she, but she's a good sport. So we did some shows, and that's where that's where I rolled into town after the Tops massacre, the supermarket, and that's when the so the ball started rolling on these these new kinds of uh, topical works I'm doing, these videos I'm doing. Okay, so A, what did your parents say when you got expelled, and B, how'd you literally decide and get to San Francisco? Well, I hitchhiked out. After college, I mean, I just, I taught, my, I mean, they love music, so they understood to some degree, but when I talked to them, I would always say, promise them, yeah, I'm going to go back to school. You know, they say, well, you're going to go back? You ever going to, yeah, I'm, I, oh, I said, yeah, I'm going to go back. This went on for years. I think I had two records out, and I, I was still telling them I was going to go back to college. So, what, you hitchhiked. Did you have any money? You landed in San Francisco. What happens? Not really. I saved a little. Well, we, I had a little folk group. We did a hoodnanny thing. There was a guy named Harry Altman. Harry Altman ran the, the town casino, which was, which was the club. It was like the, God, I'm trying to think of a comparison in New York. I mean, it was a supper club that had like people like Sinatra, Dean Martin, all these people. He was friends with all these people. So I had this idea, and I went up to him. I said, you know, I'd like to do like a hootenanny thing, like because uh, I figured I could make some money to go to the coast. So I had a little group, and I, he was very receptive, because he said, yeah, I've heard about this folk music stuff. Yeah, hootenanny. Hmm, well, we could give it a, we could give it a whirl. And, uh, and, and the place we were doing it was in the Glen Casino, which is near where I lived, you know, in the suburbs, near Snyder. And... Um, and then the union got wind of it, and I had to go down to the union and join the union. But I couldn't play, I couldn't read music. Well, I, I had studied piano, but I couldn't read music enough to play guitar on a session in Buffalo, New York with jazz guys or anything like that. But they were trying to figure out a way to make the money, get me to pay for the union, but not have me <laughs> do any work for the union. So I ended up paying a couple hundred bucks, got in the union, Harry Altman was happy about that. And, and I mean, for years, they came around to the clubs I played in the States collecting dues. A guy in a trench coat like Peter Falk would come in, wait till the end of the show and want 20 bucks and give me like a, like a, a receipt. This stuff, when I mean, when I, and I mean, it, it was crazy because I, I, you know, but we, we, so we did this thing. It was a huge success. Harry Altman couldn't believe it. And we had a, this packed house, and I made a few hundred bucks, took my guitar, and I hitchhiked west. Got rides and met my friend in California, and uh, we went up to went up and got a place in Stinson Beach in Marin County. This is like 1963. And then I went down to the coffee gallery uh, in um, North Beach, which is kind of the Italian equivalent village, Greenwich Village. San Francisco, and I got a gig at the coffee gallery, and I was playing there a couple nights a week. Dino Valente, you know, come on, people, let's get together. He wrote that song about peace, you know. 
Dino Volante? Yeah, of course. Who was also in Quicksilver Chet. Messenger Service. Yeah, he was in, his name was Chet. He had another Chet something. Right. Anyway, he wrote a song about peace and walked around dealing dope with a Bowie knife strapped to his thigh, <laughs> walking the streets. And then uh, Janis Joplin played another couple nights. So we were all, we had this little thing going at the coffee gallery. And that's where Tom Paxson found me, and he invited me to New York, and that's how I got into the, the, the singer-songwriter scene. Before we get to New York, you were there when the beat poets were the thing before it broke through, before all the hippies ultimately came, 65, 66, 67. What was it like, and did you have access to Ferlinghetti and all these other people? Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, I was there... I met a poet named uh, David Meltzer, and he he's a published poet, and he's written he wrote a book about the Beats. He's he was very much into the scene with Michael McClure and and those people, Philip Whalen, and he was working at the City Lights bookstore. And through David, I met Fallon Getty, and then then Alan Ginsberg had come in from Cambodia from Vietnam. He floated into town in all white, looking like he was an Indian guru. And I met him. I met McClure. And, uh, of course, Alan Ginsberg was very much against the Vietnam War. He was over there, and he saw all the stuff that was going on before it escalated. So, and David David and I had a little group called the Snopes County Camp Followers, which is like a little folk group that included my wife, Debbie Green, who was a a singer, and she owned a club called the Cabal out there uh, in Berkeley. The Cabal is a club. Uh, I, I, this is a kind of a tangent, 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 gentle uh, <laughs> interview. But she had a club that you know, like Lightning Hopkins would play, and Doc Watson, you know, Cl- Clarence Ashley, Lenny Bruce. All you know, they would play her club. It was kind of modeled after Club Forty Seven. We we became later we became an item. And went to New York, but um, well, okay. W- what point did you start playing original material? Well, I was doing, I was doing, I was doing original material starting in San Francisco. I was trying stuff out. I mean, I, I wanted to be a writer. That was that was the that I knew. How did you meet Tom Paxton, and how did he convince you to come to New York? He was playing at the Cabal, where Debbie had this club, and then he came, she brought him over to the coffee gallery. He heard me play, and he liked my act. And he invited me to New York and said, here, stay in my house. He gave me keys. So I went there, and we, Debbie and I went there, and we lived in his house. He, he was in England for a while. And then I met Phil Oaks, and Phil, Phil took me around uh, the streets. I met Dave Von Rock. I met Dylan Bob, you know, and everybody. Um, Patrick Sky, Buffy St. Marie, and and then I got a deal with uh, Vanguard Records. Okay, before you get there, you hitchhiked to California. How did you get from California to New York? I flew to my parents' house in Buffalo. I stayed there for a couple months to detox, kind of. And then I went to New York and uh, to Paxson's place. But but when I was in when I was at my house, my all this stuff's in bios and stuff actually, but. Um, but you know, when I got to my my parents' house, it was nice though because I, I could sit at the dining room table and I really started writing songs. Uh, I wrote a song called "Come to My Bedside." There, I remember. 
So it was a, it was kind of a beautiful, very innocent time. And then I got my, I think, uh, somehow I got a ride to New York and, and then it all began. Now, Debbie was with you the whole time? Yeah, she flew, she flew in and, and then joined me in New York. Okay, so you're now in Tom Paxton's apartment. You're there with Debbie. You don't really know anybody. What happens? Well, Phil Oaks took me around to meet a lot of people. Phil. And uh, and then and Dylan, you know, he introduced me to some people. I think he introduced me to Jack Elliott. And, uh, but he, you know, Bob was making, you know, he was doing tours and making some good money. He was, you know, he was doing solo tours, driving around. I, I mean, I think when I hit, when I hit this, when I hit the set, I think he'd had three records out, you know, but he'd be coming down and playing, testing stuff in the, you know, in the clubs, which was great and hang out. And it was all about writers and writing and, uh, this little, this little group that thought it could change the world. I mean, we're talking about a four or five songwriters of this kind of, this kind of, you know, people like Bob and David Blue and Phil Oaks was just this little handful. And there were guys who played over the, the night out, people like the great Fred Neal, who's like my, was my favorite of all of them. But he and Tim Harden and people like Lisa Kendra, these people played in the night out. There was a whole thing over there, you know. And uh, people like Lou Reed, I never met. He was over on the east side doing stuff, playing different things, clubs and stuff. So, Phil Oaks. They were writers. You know, Phil Oaks. Well, go on. You're saying something? I was saying, I was saying Bob, how are we going to do this? This is 1964 and it's now 2023. How are we going to? Well, we're we, going. As uh, I say, uh, we, gonna, we started we with. This? We started with your new record. As I say, I'm willing to jump back to 2023 if there's something specific you want to mention. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just wondering. It's a there's a lot of a lot of a lot of territory. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so it was an exciting time, and um, I think the highlight for me of being in the village was I had signed with Vanguard Records and was had recorded, but I didn't. The record didn't come out for ages. It seemed like an eternity. It's like being a kid trying to watch in the clock. When is, you know, when is French French lessons going to be over? And like the hour never ends. And it was like this. Uh, I waited like a year and a half or something till the till the bloody record came out, the first album. And it seemed like an eternity. And I was living on the Lower East Side, cooking for junkies, you know, on East Tenth Street. So finally. The one thing that was really good was that people in the village, I got to know all the club owners, like from the gate, like Art to Lugov and people like a, people like um, the village vanguard, the jazz places, and I, and the people like the Gaslight and clubs like that on Gertie's Folk City. I had done one gig because Robert Shelton from the New York Times got me a gig at Folk City and then kind of nothing happened. It was a good gig. Me and John Lee Hooker did a gig. But then nothing happened. So I'm sitting around cooking for junkies, trying to do some gardening and for people and going to these clubs at night. And then I lived up at Broadside Magazine. I don't know if you heard of that, but Broadside of course. was tropical songwriting. So I lived up there. And uh, but, but the main, most important thing is that people were playing for a week at venues, you know, 
Lightning Hopkins, you know, uh, Mississippi John Hurt, Doc Watson, Clarence Ashley, all these people, Devon Ron, Phil, everybody, they would go into a club and play for a week all over America. Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Mingus would play the game for a week. So I could go down there and I sit at their knees, at these people's knees, and that this was my PhD in music, I mean, and sit there every single night and hear Lightning Hopkins. And it blew my mind. And I don't think many people can say that. So, I mean, th th that's where I really learned how to, about touch, space, music, you know. Though I didn't apply everything I learned right away because I could tell by all the scratch marks on my guitar, I was really overplaying sometimes. If it was a loud song, I got to play loud, you know. And it does, and I later I found out it really didn't work that way because it's all about space. You say you were cooking for junkies. What were you literally doing? Cooking for junkies. I was like living on a, on a West 10th Street. Debbie and I were living on West 10th Street. These guys lived on 8th Street, and I'd go down and I'd, I'd go to the markets, the vegetable market and stuff. Had a key to their place, go and cook lunch for them. They'd be, then they'd be, they'd be knotted out in the living room, and I'd go and take plates to them with food. And they paid you for this? They paid me, yeah. They paid me. I mean, I don't know how much, 30 bucks a week or something. I don't know. And what was Debbie doing? Debbie was uh, going between here and Boston. I mean, there in Boston. You know, she was. She had her things. She had. Her. We got kicked out of this place. We had a German landlord who was on East Town Street. He he took me out in the back and set me on a set me down on a milk carton. And said, "I got to talk to you." I said, "Yes." What's wrong? The rent? No, no. He said, "Are you married to that girl?" I said, no. He said, you know, I didn't think so. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to evict you from this place. Evict me for what? He said, because you and her are the reason Adam and Eve got thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Pack your bags, be out of here in a week. I mean, you couldn't make this shit up. These, these are the kinds of things that were happening. You know, I mean, you, you never knew everything. It's like a, a piano fell out of a tree and hit you on the head. You, you, you don't have any, you're never prepared for these things. How'd you get your record deal? Well, I think Tom Paxton called Robert Shelton at the New York Times. And Robert Shelton came down to Tom's house and I played him some songs. He, I was sitting in a chair. He was sitting on the bed. And uh, he liked what he heard. And he wrote a thing. He wrote a, he got arranged for a gig at the uh, Curtis Folk City. And he wrote a thing about me in the New York Times that I was the antidote to the Beatles. Because Robert Shelton was a writer who, a brilliant guy. He, he believed that after Elvis and, and the 50s and rock and roll, the next big thing should be the singer-songwriters, the Phil Oakes and the Bob Dylans, and that should be the, the big thing in American culture, is musically. The Beatles were a mortal enemy to him. And the ironic thing is that the Beatles' manager became my manager, Brian Epstein. That was the, that, that, <laughs> the whole twist, and the, and the headline of this article is the antidote to the Beatles. So uh, there you go. I mean, like I said, you know, it's like, the piano's falling out of the trees. 
So he he uh, called Robert Shelton called Maynard Solomon and Maynard Solomon came down. He sat on the bed and I sat on the on the uh, chair and I sang him songs and we went and he he got me a deal and that was it. I mean, almost too easy, you know. It was almost too easy. It was ridiculous. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, while you're cooking for junkies, waiting for the album to come out, are you playing out live? No, like I said, I couldn't get any work waiting for this record to come out. I'm sitting around doing nothing. I'm just going to hear people playing clubs. So what happens when the record does come out? Nothing happened right away, but, you know, suddenly, you know, people were interested in it because it got really good reviews. And uh, so I started playing gigs, you know, for a week, like uh, like, like Miles did and like uh, Lightning Hopkins did and all these, all my heroes. So you'd go to you'd go play a gig in Cleveland. You go play a gig in Chicago. You go play a gig in Montreal. You go play a gig in Toronto. You go play a gig in Atlanta, and it's like you could you could live there. You knew the restaurants. You knew where the movie theaters were. You could start a family. I mean, it was just you basically moved into a town. And you got you became this sort of weird de- denizen of a city. It was incredible, you know. And you know then 
so the people like me who could see Lightning Hopkins play for a week or Mississippi John, like multiple times in a year, to see these guys play, people were lucky if they could even see him play at a college concert somewhere for one night. I mean, the stuff I saw, and it doesn't exist anymore. Does uh, Skip James, Sun House, all these people I saw, they're gone. Nobody ever got to see him. I mean, except the people who paid to come, you know, to come to the gigs. But I got in for free, so I could just sit there all week. And I think I was the only songwriter who was doing that. I didn't. I don't remember seeing any Paxton or Devon Rock or Phillips or any. It was only me there, catching all these blues acts and jazz acts, and you know, and the great folk acts like Clarence Ashley, Gene Ritchie, and um, uh, Reverend Gary Davis, people like that. I mean, it was phenomenal because then I didn't have a record collection. I didn't have I didn't have blues records or anything. And uh, it was just phenomenal. How'd you hook up with Epstein? I was playing a gig down at the Steve Paul scene, and Bob Bobby Columbia was my drummer. Bobby, you know, he started Blood, Sweat, and Tears later on. Bobby, I don't know how the hell I met Bobby Columbia, but he, he but he was my drummer, and I had a little band. Debbie played some piano. And he for somehow knew Brian Epstein, and he just, I don't know, his brother knew him or something. And he brought Brian down. I didn't know, you know, he was there. Brian was, Brian came down to the gig. We played, you know, like another gig for a week. Brian came down for every single night. I didn't know he was there for like five nights. But there, I just, there was this guy sitting there in the middle. I was, there was always this one person sitting at the, at the table there. And then finally I met him and we went up to Bobby's he wanted, he said, could I manage you? You know, I'd love to do that. I said, sure. He said, oh, I mean, this is the guy who really trusted. I mean, we loved him right away. We were just shattered when he died. It was like, it was really horrible, really horrible. Because he had this thing, he just said, look, just do what you do. Just don't call me. You know, remember, there's six hours difference, five hours difference between England and London and New York. Don't call me at night because I'm trying to sleep because I didn't think about the time difference, you know. So, but he, but he said, look, just do what you do. And if it's okay with you, I'll try to put you in very special places if you approve of it, agree with it. And that was the only managerial thing he ever said. So you make a number of albums for Vanguard, ultimately six it supports your touring in these varying cities, but can you feel the momentum building or what was it like? Well, I don't know. Showbiz never was my thing, you know, as my record sales will attest. I mean, it's, I've never been, uh, I think my main interest is writing, always exploring. My my mindset is I was just, I was in a, in a dugout canoe somewhere at the Amazon River, and I just was paddling upstream to see what I could find. So, I mean, I was always interested in the writing, and and then, you know, of course, you document the stuff and make records, and you experiment with music, and you fool around and stuff. But um, I guess momentum was building. Yeah, things were happening. But I don't, I didn't, I, I can't tell you anything about how much I thought about it. How'd you end up on Warner Brothers? Oh, this friend of Phil Oaks is uh, Andy Wickham. Signed me. And was that a good experience or bad experience? 
Well, I think they gave me too much freedom. <laughs> One album I made in Nashville that was pretty good, had some good, well, they all had good songs. But the other one in L.A. was kind of, it was kind of a big band extravaganza, and I didn't think it worked at all. I think there was some really good songs in it, but it didn't really do that well. And and even Eve Babbitt did the cover, you know, her? Of course, recently died. Yeah, so she, we, we were friends, and she did she did a cover, and, uh, and uh, but I don't, the record didn't do very well. So Mo Austin said, look, I'm going to release you, and... Uh, you can have the tapes. Okay. And I'm living in Venice and, you know, I, I mean, I have no sense of business at all. I mean, I think, I think my dog has more sense of business than I do, but I, and then Clive Davis came along and signed me from, uh, from Columbia records. Can you be a little bit more specific? How did you connect with Clive Davis? I think, um, I think again it was like through Bobby, Bobby Columbia. Again, it was these both of these things happened through Bobby. So you switch to Columbia and you make Blue River, which is considered to be legendary and has some impact. Did you feel that on the inside? Yeah, I mean, I knew there was a special uh, something very special happened. I mean, because it was kind of taped together in a way. I mean, forgive the pun, but because I did some of the stuff. I did one track with Roy Halley in San Francisco. I did one track in New York at Columbia Studios. I did two tracks at Wally Hyder's in L.A. I did the rest, the other five tracks in Nashville, and somehow the guy put it together. It sounded like it was all done in, I don't know how it happened. This was like something that, this was Mana from Heaven or something. I don't know how it happened. And then there you go. You got a thing that's like more than some of its parts. I mean, the sum is greater than the, you know, than the parts, uh, gestalt. And how did you end up moving from Columbia to Arista? Well, my second album for Columbia got lost. I think on purpose. Because when, when I was making the album, Clive got fired People all over Columbia Records was crawling with FBI people. There was like payola accusations and drugs and prostitutes. I mean, the whole place was exploding. Clive, had, you know, Clive was on the streets. And the people that Clive picked for me who worked with me, they weren't into, I don't think they were so interested in losing their gigs. They all were very ambitious at Sony. Columbia, and I think they held on to their jobs. Nobody wanted to finish this album, and it just got dropped. So we finished it in Nashville. We finished it, and then I got a call in New York from somebody from in Nashville. Oops, we got to tell you, sorry, we think your album got lost. Well, of course, nothing gets lost. And years later, uh, a woman named Amy Herod and started this huge search around the world at Columbia. I mean, searching all the vaults from Tokyo to Paris, London, Berlin, everywhere there was vaults at Columbia. They or you know, CBS Records. They searched and searched, and they turned it up, turned up in Nash. They were in Nashville because a, tr a truck came up with no identification, went into the vaults at, on 51st Street. A lot of the 
tapes of Columbia are like where IBM keeps stuff and it's in a mountain up in near Woodstock, like a mountain. What's it called? Uh, there's a name. Iron for Mountain. Yeah. So they got all the, but anyway, some stuff was put, so they dumped all these tapes all over the floor in the middle of the night with no signing and no signing out, no nothing. Somebody just ran in from a truck, dumped the, they saw them. Somebody saw them, but nobody knew who they were, dumped the tapes. And uh, the next day, a guy who worked there was carrying a whole armful of tapes that went over his head, walked around the corner, slipped on the tapes that were on the floor, broke his vertebrae in his back, and he's been out of work ever since. Wow. And that's how the tapes were found. So you, you go to Arista. Just when Clive Davis starts that company, you make a couple of albums there. The record company doesn't even have that many records. He puts out Patti Smith, puts out Eric Carmen. Uh, did you feel you got the proper attention? You made the right records there? Well, he was just starting up. I mean, you know, you make records. You don't, I mean, I don't know if they were right. They felt, you know, they feel right when you're doing it, but that doesn't mean in hindsight they were right. So ultimately you end up moving to Norway. How does that happen? You meet somebody, you know, like journalists. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes a journalist will say, well, why did you, why did you, why are you in the Netherlands? And you say a woman and there's never a follow-up question. It's, it's incredible. In your case, I don't know. I can't predict. So where'd you meet this woman? I think I met her in, I met her in Norway. And you were there working? Yeah. I met her. We were doing a concert. I met her. And what had happened between you and Debbie at this point? Oh, Debbie and I had, we, Debbie and I had been separated for 20 years. But we still got together making. Did you ever see the movie, The Song Poet? Not the whole thing, no. Well, if you watch the whole thing, you'll, see, you'll understand more. Okay, and that's something you'd rather not speak about? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's already on record. No, I mean, you know, it's there, the story. Okay. You're, you're, the, you're have... the journalist, man. It's I'm the one living the life and doing the art. So. Okay, so it's, you, it's, had it's, a, you had a daughter. Uh, was that a big responsibility, and what's she up to today? She's a singer, and um, she's a yoga practitioner, and uh, she, she lives in Hawaii. She has a couple kids. And uh, she's studying m medicine. Um, she's taking courses in medicine, and she's become a, quite serious about it. And what kind of relationship do you have with her? I don't know. You know, uh, Bob, I don't know. I, I mean, you, these questions are, I think, I don't want to talk about my private life and my relationships. I don't ask you about yours. Well, you could, but we don't have to go there. So was it a so, I mean, I'm very close. I love her very much. We're very close. She's a great, very talented girl. She's on this album, this tribute album. She sings a song. You can hear what she does. If you have an album, I don't know if you do, but somebody can yeah. get one too. Yeah. It's on, it's on, Spotify. It's on, it's on Spotify. Right. It's on streaming services. 
So was it a big decision to move to Norway? Because Norway is not the, I've been there a couple of times, but it's not the epicenter of the music business. Yeah, but see, I never really felt I was in the music business. So that it, that didn't even, I, I was mainly in the writing business. In my, so I didn't think about that. And I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to poke around and see things in Europe and spend some time in Europe. So Norway is a good place to, you know, to move around from any place. Any place in Europe is good. You have, you just have a place. There's always a good place to leave and go to from Europe. You know, and I'd read a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of the ins- my really inspirations of stuff were European. I think, you know, Rimbaud, Baudelaire, the poets I read, and Russian writers. I never got to Russia. I can't go. No. They, they just nabbed this guy from the Wall Street Journal. Very unsafe place to go. But, uh, yeah. So I got to see Europe, and I got to see things that I wanted to see. But, I mean, New York was always, you know, I think it's always in your soul. I mean, you, I was thinking about New York City, you know, the walking down the street. And it's the same as it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30, the rhythm of the streets, the pace, the walking. I mean, it's, it's just always the same. That's the thing about New York that I love. It just will never change as long as there's streetlights. And as long as there's, you know, traffic, the pace, the walking pace, it's it's like it epitomizes New York. And uh, that stays with me. And I guess I guess you really are a New Yorker if you think about how the Yankees do when you go to sleep at night and it's changing. <laughs> how often do you get to New York? I'm going there in a couple of weeks. I'm recording and finishing an album that I started. Uh, uh in a few weeks, I'm doing some shows. I'm doing one out at McCabe's. Maybe I'll see you there. Right. And how about financially? You moved to, you know, Oslo or you wherever you were in Norway. How does it work financially? Did you have enough money from the music business? Were you playing gigs? Well, I mean, I... You get royalties, you play good. I mean, it's my, the royalties aren't so great now. I mean, they're not so good. They kind of drastically fell. I mean, even, even with Bob Dylan singing my song on three records, it's still, that he ain't making me any money. But, uh, I mean, there's enough. You play, you get some royalties. You know, there's enough. You can, you, you can survive. Money... I never, uh, I don't think about it too much. So what was it like living in Norway as opposed to living in the U.S.? Safer. It's safer, they got a, they have a healthcare system. Nobody's walking around with guns. I mean, you know, man, you in like 14 states, you can walk around with guns concealed or or not concealed without a permit, handguns. How do you feel about that? I feel pretty bad. Uh, you know, if the world situation in light of what's going on 
not only in Hungary, but China and Israel. And then you have Trump. It's, it's a scary time, something I've never experienced in my lifetime. Yeah, it's, it's the hour of the autocrats. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like something you didn't think would ever happen. I mean, but it is happening. I mean, Holland has a right-wing government. I mean, it's not anything. Nobody's walking around doing saying Heil Hitler or anything like that. I mean, but it's a right-wing government. It's very pro-business. They're not really into helping anybody. They're into taking stuff away if they can. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not as bad as the states. I mean, the states. The states are the paradigm of all you can't, all you don't get or can't get. Can you amplify that a little bit? I'm saying the states. They're the they're the paradigm. You know, they're the ones representing uh, a country. Uh, social system, cultures of, of all the things you can't get and are not protected or not covered. You I mean, mean like health care? Health care, education. I mean, it's a, it's a country that doesn't realize that health care and education are the, the main ingredients in the recipe for the future for a country. You have to have healthy people who are educated and know things to carry out, to carry the torch. But it's always been an elite, you know, with, it's, it's an elitist. I mean, it's not quite as elitist as England, you know, where the minute, the minute of the second you open your mouth, they know what class you're coming from, you know, just by the first word you say. They can, they can pinpoint you, you know, just, just by the sound of the words you use. Like somebody from Brooklyn or somebody from Queens or somebody from, you know, in England, there's, there's a, there's a whole hierarchy of, uh, of language, of elocution. So I don't know. Norway's nice. I mean, uh, Europe's nice. It's a uh, Europe is uh, people. They complain about the taxes, but people are driving Teslas around here. People are. I mean, you know, it's people are. Many people are doing fine, but of course there are some people who aren't. But that's true of everywhere. So you had a number of kids in Oslo. What are they up to? One's a one's a singer. She's on the album named Signa. You can hear her on uh, Spotify. Um, one's a painter. The other's a photographer, and the other one's a school teacher. And how old are they? Man, now I got to think. They range from uh, thirty-five to early late twenties. And so the mother of those children was an artist herself. Yeah. Of some renown, correct? Yeah. She is. She's, she's a famous painter and artist in Norway and in Scandinavia, Sweden and Denmark somewhat too. And how did it end with her such you met a new woman and you're now living in the Netherlands? Read my book, Bob. Read my book. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. 
Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So how long have you been living in the Netherlands? Uh, I've been here about 20 years. I mean, we, I, met my, I met my wife in Switzerland, Inga, and she, we joke, and sometimes on stage, she's the one who said it took her five years to get her PhD. She says, well, what are you doing here in Switzerland? I said, well, I'm here to count my money. Uh, and she, told, she tells people, well, and it took them a very long time because it was all in coins. <laughs> it was all in coins. I'm writing, a, I'm writing a song about this now, actually. Yeah, but, um, and she's a musician and she, she sings and she, she made an album herself called Fallen Angel. And we were in Rotterdam. We gave a copy to Bob to Dylan. Three months later, an album came out called Fallen Angels. Now, I wonder if there's any connection. When was the last time you connected with Bob? Well, I don't know. He, he, he must like me because, you know, they were great giving me this, you know, for this song, for this tribute album, you know, giving me all the royalty. I mean, they just, they were, they just handed it over on a silver platter. Him and his manager, they were wonderful. In terms of, uh, well, I was doing this album about, there's, I think there's a part of my life you don't know much about, but I made a few albums about writers about Heinrich Bull, the writer, the Nobel Prize German writer, Lord Byron, and Albert Camus. Three albums of writers that were done in Germany. And um, 
I was doing stuff on Camus, and I know that Jeff sent stuff to Dylan about this, the stuff I was doing with that, the, you know, the, the lyrics. I didn't ask him to do it. I didn't even, it wasn't intended for him, but uh, I was thinking Jesus is going to show up in his next record or something. So, I mean, I haven't, but I haven't been, I haven't been in touch with, I haven't been in touch with him in a while, actually. Well, I mean, we went, yeah, it's been a while. But he's great to talk to because he loves books and he loves literature and he, he loves, um, I don't know, he's, he's very curious. The beauty of him is he's very curious about stuff. So, I mean, I, I feel a kinship with him. When you were in Norway, you formed a group with Rick Danko of the band and a local musician. How did that come together? Uh, I, I saw Rick in New York, and uh, Rick said, Hey, man, come and sing on the show. I sang on a show. It was with the uh, Room Full of Blues, him in the Room Full of Blues. Yeah, of course. And I sang, I sang on a show, and he said, Hey, come up to Woodstock. Let's write some stuff. Let's do something. And so I went up to Woodstock for a few days. I didn't even bring a spare pair of underwear, and I ended up there for two two weeks, maybe more, three weeks. I went. I, his wife got me underwear, got me T-shirts. I went and I bought a jacket. I mean, I just, I, I was just going up for a couple of days. So I ended up, and then we started working together. And then I knew this guy Jonas fell in Nor Norway and. Uh, I had done some over some uh, this album stages. You know, this missing well, there's an album that got lost in Colombia, and um, it got found. I told you it got found. I don't know, or maybe you know this. And um, after they searched all over the place, it showed up on the floor of a tape vault. So uh, we did some bonus tracks for the CD, and Rick arranged a gig for me, uh, and Rick played on it, and Jonas came in from Norway and uh, sang a little. Willie Nile did some singing. Um, I think Garth Hudson was involved. But anyway, we went up to Woodstock, and Rick arranged his gig. He got an amp, and he got mics and stuff at this little place. And uh, what's it called? The Woodstock... Uh, the cafe, Tinker Street Cafe, very famous place. So he did this gig, and Jonas is, had been drinking beer all day, sitting in the audience. I'm playing, singing. Rick's playing bass, singing. And we did this song called Blue River. And Jonas just jumps up and starts singing a third part, and the whole place just exploded. It was like the Beatles or something. I don't know. It was like, and the whole roof just splintered. So we, we said, hey, wait a minute. Mick Ronson was there, too. Mick was playing some slide. And the whole place just, everybody went, whoa, all of us, including us. So we started this little group and made a couple of records, and people loved it. Well, I think it's on the first record you have a definitive version of that song, Twilight, from the band. Yeah, that's Rick's tune. So... During this period, when you leave the States, you live in Norway, you live in Netherlands, you're obviously searching, going to Europe, learning things, studying. Did you always view yourself as a musician, recording artist, or did you think that part of your life was done and then you would return? What was going through your mind? 
You know, I got to tell you something. Thinking is the antichrist of art. I don't think about those things. Okay. There seems to be somewhat of a renaissance now. You talk about the tribute album. We have the new song, Dangerland. Is this conscious? Like, okay, I want to get back in the game, get some attention. I don't think that way, Bob. Maybe I'll tell you, I'll, tell you, I'll give you a little clue. When it comes to writing, I don't even know. I don't even know what I'm doing. I mean, I think I'm probably like an idiot savant. The songs just basically visit me, and I just sit with a pen, and I just, I'm a stenographer. I just take it down. They're already there. They just come through me, and I write them down. I don't think about it. I don't plan it. I don't craft it out. I don't, it just goes through my fingers, and I write it down. There's like visitations or something. They, They come from the air. And I think that's about pretty much sums it up for everything that I, in terms of how I operate. How did the uh, tribute album come together? Uh, this guy had this idea he wanted to do it, and so we contacted people, and I had ideas about who could do what songs. Have you heard it? Yeah. Uh, I had an idea of who could do what, and uh, and uh, there were... People were very cooperative and nice, and uh, they recorded the songs. And I think they, I think I did a pretty good job with ANRing the, the thing, and because they, they liked what they they wanted to do the songs. We had a couple, you know, something, you know. I was hoping to get, you know, we were thinking about Jackson Brown and, uh, and James Taylor on a song that James and I had worked on once years ago, and this was before the pan pandemic and then he was going on tour this kind of thing and Jackson I don't know it just got it no, no, nothing ever came to Mary Gaucher was going to do something you know she got money for the record and she had this song and she wanted that song another song but she ended up not doing it so I mean maybe there's some kind of like you got to have a certain star power maybe you have to be of a certain kind of echelon or something to say oh Paul McCartney, will you be on my record? And like, if you've had three number one hits, they might say yes. So, you know, there, there might be like a subtext or a hidden story to this thing. You know what I'm saying? To get people to be, to do your songs. Oh, it's a whole political thing. And I think you have a pretty good angle on it. I mean, I, I, we, we, I wrote, I like Graham, I wrote Graham on Nash and he just said, no. <laughs> well, at least he, you no. know, a lot of times, a lot of times you can't even hear from people. You know, they figure if you don't hear from them, that means no. Well, you know, whatever. But I mean, the people who did it, I think they put their hearts and souls into it. And I think they did a beautiful, a beautiful. And, and Bob, Bob was, Dylan was the first to get on board. So Joni Mitchell credits you with uh, learning about open tunings. How did you start experimenting with open tunings? You're in these blues guys down in the village. You know, like 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 Fred McDowell. He's a he plays slide guitar. Book of White does tunings. You know, I you know, I got interested in tunings. And so I was at her house in Detroit. She was living there with her husband and and she did. She was fed up with doing normal tuning. She hated it. 
playing C's and F's and G's, and I understood it because it's, you know, tunings are more trancey. They're more, uh, there's a fluidity to them. You know, it's uh, more, uh, how shall I say, more Arabic, because it's more, uh, it's less defined in terms of like chords, using straight chords. And she, I so I taught her, I think, uh, E tuning, E or D, and G tuning. And she loved it. And then I think she told me she went on, she, she probably made, she made about 102 tunings. One night on the phone, she played me, it was on the phone, she played me about 14 tunings she did. I mean, it was just sitting, and, and, and she even played the tunings that Keith Richards uses that probably got from her. <laughs> You know, so you got them from you got them from her. So she did phenomenal. It was phenomenal what she did. She took off. It took off. And I mean, if she hadn't learned it from me, she would have learned it from somebody else. <clears throat> but I think we, maybe I, we, I saved her a little time. Now, needless to say, Joni Mitchell, not only being a great artist, has gotten a great amount of acclaim. Anybody from that era who you feel needs recognition or music needs to be heard today, who's uh, fallen off the radar to a degree. Besides myself? Besides yourself. Besides myself? Um, well, I mean, you know, we're in the danger zone now. I mean, a lot of people are no longer with us. Um, I'm trying to think, like, like, what do you, can be, could you make it, a, could you be a little clearer about that when you say, well, you know, Tim Hart in a couple of his songs, If I Were a Carpenter, a couple of others are remembered, but he's fading into uh, history. You know, uh, you talk about Mississippi Fred McDowell. These are people, if you live through the era, you're aware of, but younger generations are not aware of a lot of these uh, performers. Well, they all have their own music, you know, they have things that speak to them. Uh, that, that you know that express what they're feeling, and that's just that's how things have been since you know Mozart before. However, that said, Mozart, uh, some of these things have leaked through the ages, you know, like especially in the classical world and, and I, to some extent in the jazz world. I've been listening a lot to Oscar Peterson lately, you know, and uh, a Canadian guy from Montreal, phenomenal. But I, I'm. I think, you know, I, like people like Fred Neal, he's probably the greatest white singer there ever was, you know, outside of like George Jones and like Sinatra and maybe Pavarotti or somebody like that, those people. You know, but Fred Neal was great. I think Tim Harden is great. He wrote these beautiful songs. Um, all the blues people, you know, I think... They're always pertinent. They're always significant. And they'll never go away. And it's like the jazz people. I mean, you know, Miles will always be with us. Coltrane, you know, all these people will be with us. So, I mean, I'm a funny guy to ask because I'm, I've listened to all this old stuff. You know, I listened to Fats Waller and I listened to, you know, Earl Father Hines. And I mean, I, I listened to all this stuff all the time. So, I mean, I'm not of this world. I'm not of this time zone. <laughs> But I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, probably deserve to be heard more of, you know. And Thirsty Boots ended up being covered by many artists. 
Bob Dylan, Judy Collins, et cetera, was that just serendipitous that all of a sudden you found out they were recording your songs or do you know how they ended up doing it? No idea. They just did it. I had no idea. One day you turn on the radio or you something, something, there it is. You never know in advance. And the, the thing with the Dylan thing was very strange. I mean, I, Al Cooper kind of hinted at something and said, yeah, I think he did this song, but he thought it sounded too much like you, Al Cooper. He told me this once, years ago. I never gave it any thought. But then he recorded, like, for, it was out on, one version on Record Day version, one was on a, another portraits, another sub-portrait, one of, uh, an album, another version. And then when I talked to Jeff Rosen, you know, his manager, he came up with another version that was completely beautiful that was just sitting there and uh, gave it to us. And we put Tony Garnier on it, you know, the bass player from his band, Tony. And it came out beautifully. Everybody loved it. But I don't, you don't know. I mean, it's uh, Judy. I didn't know about her. I didn't know. Sometimes I hear about a recording I never knew about from Australia or from, like, Francois Hardy. I didn't know she had recorded Violets of Dawn. I mean, <laughs> I know you think I live in an igloo or something in a bubble, but probably I do. But I don't, I don't really, I'm not always aware of the recordings. Now, you mentioned we were discussing that uh, people who need more attention didn't got, get it. You mentioned yourself. So how do you feel about your place in the firmament in history? And to what degree do you want more recognition? Well, I think um, I never had a hit record. You know? So I think, if I'll tell you one thing. If you have a hit record, you can play state fairs. You can play corporate parties, maybe. I mean, you could play, you know, I mean, having, uh, you only need one hit record. And I mean, you can, and if people will follow, if they like that, they might, if they look into your work, they might like other parts of your work, like in the case of Lou Reed, for example, you know. But I, with not having a hit, it's kind of, it's kind of heavy, it's like heavy lifting, you know, to try to get your stuff out there. And I accept that. I realize it's true. You can't, what, do you, what can you do? So, or, or even if you have somebody else get a hit like, of your song, that can help too. And I think, I think the Blues Project had a hit on Violets of Dawn, I think it was a top 10 hit, something like that. But I mean, a little bit of it rubs off, I would suppose. But, so you just go and carry on and you do what you, what you got into doing it for, and that's the writing. And you just soldier on and, you know, Whatever may be will be because I mean I I'm I'm not going to sit down and try to write a pop hit I wouldn't know how, I never know how to do it in the first place. Did you ever get any pressure from Clive Davis to try to write a hit? No, Clive never said a word. He just let me do what I wanted to do. It was great. We were surprised. He, he invited me. We flew over for his birthday party. Um, he turned ninety years old. He had this big party at Cipriani's in New York on Wall Street. So we, Inga and I fly over and uh, we're thinking, all right, we'll probably end up under a balcony or something or by a pillar. So we walk in and uh, I'm not performing or anything. And we walk into uh, 
the place and somebody comes with a little name tag and we were at the door. They wouldn't let Stevie Van Zandt in. They wouldn't let him into the, to the party because he didn't have any ID. And I mean, and so I'm standing there not even knowing him, arguing with the guy at the door saying, wait a minute, he's, you know, such and such and so-and-so. And they finally let him in. So we got him in, but so anyway, somebody comes in with a name tag and a suit and we ushers us through this huge place with all these round tables, man. And we go right to the front of the stage, put us down there. We're sitting down and like Judy Collins is on the right. Alicia Keys is on the left. Patty Smith is in front, Art Garfunkel and Robert De Niro. This is the table we're sitting at. And we're thinking, oh, shit, man, we're going to probably end up, you know, eating peanut butter sandwiches or something by some pillar. But how nice it is of Clive to invite us. But Clive, he put us right, you know, with all these beautiful people. Dan Warwick is over the next table and with and Barry Manilow and, you know, the people that he worked with. So it was a beautiful night. It was really a wonderful thing. And I talked to Clive a little bit. But it was a great, wonderful thing to do. But... uh you never know. I mean, how how you stand in this world, or where you, how your music affects people, or what it does to people. You basically don't have a clue. I mean, they're like orphans that they go off on their own and they live their own lives, and you don't know what what they will mean or what they do mean to other people. You have no, you don't have a clue. You go, you're in your world, and you keep doing doing more of what you did. And how much are you touring these days? Well, I would like to tour more, I think, but I'm touring a, not too much, very little. I'm doing some dates in the spring. Um, we're doing the, the winery. We're doing McCabe's. Doing a show in Arizona at the Musical Instrument Museum. Strange eclectic dates. Um, a date in Boston. Yeah, just some a sprinkling on the East Coast. Not too much, though. About 10 dates. I ain't going to get rich doing concerts. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. How do you feel about so many of your contemporaries passing? Where do you begin? I mean, well, not too good. I mean, I feel, I mean, uh, people I knew, like like Lou Reed was my best friend in New York. Lori kept, Lori is, you know, she says, uh, you know, it's it's okay to feel sad, but don't be sad. You know, she's a, she's a Buddhist too. I mean, he was a Tai Chi guy. But I mean, Lou, I was very close to Towns Van Zandt. We wrote together. I was close to, you know, Rick Danko. We worked together. I mean, these were people that meant a lot to me, and they knew my kids. So it was, uh, you know, and the list goes on. So you do feel kind of, in one way, you feel kind of isolated. You feel, you feel kind of left. I mean. You wonder where you, the, you begin to realize that the question isn't why are they did they did they die or why did they pass into the other world or the other side. The real question is why are we still here? Then you got to grapple with that. And I and I think sometimes you walk around and think, well, man, you know, you feel okay. You might be the eyes for Towns. You might be the eyes for Lou, or you might be the eyes for these or Phil Oaks. You know, we were. He was my brother. Fred Neal, he's very close people to me. And uh, so you feel, why am I, you know, you feel kind of like the last man standing. Right? And Joni, who's the godmother of my daughter, we almost lost her. She fell on the floor, you know, was on the floor for two days. Nobody found her. So, you know, and she'll probably be at the gig in L.A. because she always comes to the shows. But I don't know. It's it's a strange, strange thing to, to see... Uh, these beautiful, wonderful, talented, funny, great people who you were very close to. Uh, but, you know, they, they live on within you, too. They live on inside. Sometimes when I'm writing, a line will come up or something. Like, oh, yeah, Towns. Remind me of Lou or something. Remind me of... Uh, speaking of Lou, I, I had the impression you were the Lou Reed of interviewers. Okay, I'm pretty familiar with Lou Reed's career. I didn't know him personally. I've heard from Lori, but what exactly does that mean? Well, Taylor Swift called me and she told me that you were like the Lou Reed of interviewers. No, I'm kidding. Well, th that's obviously a joke, but okay. <laughs> so anyway, but but I mean, these people, you know, you they, you know, you just carry them with you. They're inside you. you know? But it's a it is a bizarre thing. I'm trying to think. There's a, there's many more too. The ones he whose names you don't know. 
you know, Debbie also, we lost her. Debbie figured very big in, in my life. We worked a lot on the music. And she's in the film. She's She does a great, she narrates a lot of the film. To what degree do you contemplate your own death? Well, I don't think, I don't, I don't think about it that much. And I don't really, it doesn't really, it doesn't really bother me. I, uh, I think you reach a certain point when you know you're in the danger zone with people, you know, with, with things like health, things that are going on. Fortunately, I'm okay. But, uh, I think you think about it and, you know, you get your head, you get yourself prepared for it. You have to be a little, you can't get attached to it. Though. But you have to see it's a thing that's, it's going to, it's going to happen. It's going to come. Like I just turned the big 8 you know, that was a number for years. Oh yeah, people turn 80, you know, or people, uh, people, you know, people get pensions or people, I don't get a pension, but I mean, and then one day you are 80 years old. That number has visited you, you know. Is there anything you want to accomplish or do before you leave this mortal call? Well, I'm working, you know, I, I'm a great believer that you don't really leave the earth, you don't leave the planet until you're finished what you were intended or what you were meant to do, until you've finished your work. And when you finish those things, then you're ready to let go of the body, you know? I'm working, you know, I'm working, I've, I've got an episodic novel I've been working on for years. I would love to see it, see the, into the light of day. And I, and I've got a, this memoir thing I've been working on, I, I would love it to be able to walk into the sun, but it all takes time. And I'm working on this album now that I started and I got to finish this damn thing. It's like, a, it's like the cross on my back. I got a, this burden I've got to carry to Calvary or something. So we're going to try to finish this this spring and have it out in the fall to, to I think called Dance of Love and Death. And another, another writer too, as close as Leonard Cohen, you know, Leonard left. So these, I didn't know Crosby that well. I mean, I know, but, but you know, these, it, uh, this is what happens. I mean, you you reach this danger zone and this is, a, this, but a lot of people, they left way before their time, you know, way before they, there's a new book Lou, uh, Lou Reed put out. You should get it. It's called the Art of the Straight Line. It's really beautiful. I'm reading it now. Lori put it together and it's really a sensational, it's a, it's a really a great book. Hal Wilner's in it and, uh, and, Ramancho Mata from in Paris, he's in it. He does a great chapter. And uh, it's, it's wonderful uh, to read. It's very refreshing. And Lou jumps off the page. He's right, comes alive. Have you heard about it? Of course. So what's an average day like for you? Well, I get up and uh, I walk the dog and I start writing. So you're working as hard as you ever were. Yeah. I've written a lot of new songs for this record. Plus, I'm doing these video, I'm doing these projects, these sort of topical songs that nobody wants to look at or face or even think about. But I'm going to do it anyway, because in the end, they're going to see that it mattered. Why do you think doing topical songs 60 years ago was at the forefront of artistic culture 
and now it's way in the background. Well, topical songs. See, these things, I don't know. I sent you the rainfalls down in Amsterdam. Did you hear it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So about fascism and Nazis and how these things, this was, I wrote right after the wall fell down. They, they're prescient. They're like, they're not uh, protest songs. They're not really topical songs. We're using that as a term of convenience, but I mean, it's, these are, these are more like I say, like from a medical journal, if you go to the Mayo Clinic site, you know, you, you read a description of a disease. You got a disease, say, about mass shootings. It's not going to change. It's never going to change. It's just going to get worse. If the bodies are going to pile up. And this thing, this song, this, it lays it all out. And it's from the point of view of a shooter, which is unique. It's not like singing about something, oh, what's a bad thing to do? Shoot, you know, this is actually about a kid who goes and shoots some, shoots up his class, you know. So, I mean, it's, these perspectives are very interesting. You know, it's almost cinemagraph, uh, cinemagraphic and the approach in some ways, but it's not descriptive, it's actually active. So uh, it's a, I think they're important, these things, these songs, and nobody's doing it. No artists are reacting, they just, it's just newspapers and television, that's it. And it's, we're so sorry, and like at the end of Dangerland says, you know, prayers and, our prayers are with you, you know, our thoughts and prayers are cheap in Dangerland, you know. And you always hear it, the same old shit over and over again. And it's like, come on, a government's supposed to, a government's supposed to protect, you know, keep your, keep its people safe. You, all right, there's criminals. They're going to go kill people. You can't stop criminals. They come, but you just take their toys away. They can't have these toys. They can be criminal all they want, but don't let them have these, these weapons. Read the Washington Post. Read what a read what an eight. Um, yeah, I saw that in the Washington do. Post yesterday. Yeah. See right. what a bullet. See what a bullet can do to a kid. You know, I mean. Uh, so these this is this these songs are important, but nobody knows it yet. Nobody knows. Well, we're getting the word out here, but also, why do you believe there can be no change? Well, I read the Times. I'm. A, I'm. I, I'm. A, I must be a. I must be some kind of newsprint masochist because I get the New York Times delivered to my door every day in the Netherlands. And I read the article about that. Did you get the New York Times? Absolutely. Well, I'll send you the link to this thing if you didn't catch it about the Republicans who are going to empower the ones who can make or break anything. They say the same old talking points, nothing can be done. It's the most extraordinary comments they made about I, I read the article, yeah. So so you're asking me, can things change? What do you think when you read that? Well, I view it, listen, public protest driven by younger people helped stop the Vietnam War. And I certainly remember that. I thought that when the Supreme Court struck down abortion rights, people would be rioting in the streets. They were not. So I think back to what was happening in Vietnam. Well, half the public was affected because of the draft. So my question becomes in my mind, 
What is the trigger point where people react? We saw this in Israel. There was a trigger point. It was not anticipated. No one felt that they would get into power and do this. And the public said, no mas. We certainly know there are plenty of trigger points on the right. Is there a trigger point on the left? As I say, I thought there was. Things are going in the wrong direction. Even if, uh, I mean, one can't predict the future. But the Republicans presently control the House of Representatives. They passed the debt ceiling limits under Trump when there was a lot of spending. They won't do it under Biden. They won't even put forth a budget. How long can this go on before people react? And well, at this point— Yeah, but remember, Israel is a country that's more homogeneous— America is not a, really a homogeneous, it's a, not a homogeneous country like Italy, Israel. I know Israel's, I know they come from all over Europe. And I know there are people after the diaspora, diaspora, however you pronounce that word. I mean, they all, many, many came back, returned. It's still through the, through the cultural and the religion, there, it's more homogeneous, you know, the Orthodox alternative notwithstanding. Or Italy or France, you know, you got this sort of, or the Dutch people. America is a different story. And I'll tell you, this gun thing, it's not going to end in like several lifetimes, as far as we know, because the way the thing was set up, Israel, they don't have states. They don't have an Alabama. They don't have a Massachusetts. They don't have a South Dakota. It's set up so you've got to go through a lot of hoops and a lot of ringers to get things to stop especially taking, because it's not just not selling assault weapons. You got to do what Australia does. You got to turn the weapons in and pay, you know, pay people to turn their weapons in. They've got more weapons than people. It's just, and it's, it's going on and on and on. So, I mean, it, it's become, it's like palpable. It's a, it, the danger in the States is, and the Republicans or whoever they, those people are, they're not, no one's going to change this. There's going to be more and more. There's been 170 mass shootings, I said before, since the new year. It's March 30th. Now, it's these things are going to escalate. More of these guns are being sold. It's a good business to be in, selling guns. You know, the handgun thing with no licenses? Right. They don't even need to get a license. You don't have to go learn how to shoot, go to a, get a certificate from a shooting club that you know how to use a weapon. And you can carry it around to a bar, into a high school, into a college, in your back of your belt. So I don't know how this is going to play. You know, the, the, but you read that article. That was the scariest thing I ever read because there's no support. You know, there's no backing up. They, they, they just want to make. They want to unleash it more. They want to. What's the word? Unleash, or they want to lessen the restrictions. Right. I mean, some of the stuff is absolutely head-turning, like getting uh, in Arkansas, getting rid of protections for child workers. I am a pessimist, but I must throw in here. We grew up, the concept that marijuana would be legal. People talked about it. We laughed about it, but it's true. Gays can get married. So as much as I'm a pessimist, things can change. 
The other thing is we grew up with all these people fighting for their nations. And we'd say, man, that's not where I'm at. You look at some of these countries like Hungary, uh, like Ukraine in the reverse, you realize at some point, maybe you have to sacrifice. I'm an old guy, but you have to sacrifice your life for some. This is the other thing that you're talking about in your art. You're standing for something. That's a concept that has been lost to say, I'm going to put everything on the line, irrelevant of what goes on. I'm putting things on the line. You got to start with one person, start somewhere. It also, remember, gay marriage, marijuana doesn't have this thing chiseled into the Constitution called the Second Amendment. And the Second, Man- Second Amendment, by the way, it was weird. Robert Palmer hit me into this. You know, the writer from the New Robert York Palmer, Times. Robert Palmer, the writer, yeah, New York Times, now pa- deceased. Palmer, it's, it, he, you know, him, his daughter and mine went to Sarah Lawrence together. We, they were very best friends, and, and Palmer was a very close friend of mine. And he said, you know, the, the Second Amendment, and I, it, 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 it turned out to be totally patently true. The Second Amendment was not about, well, the British are going to come. Let's all get, get our guns out to protect ourselves. It was, it was put in by southern states only for white slave owners to have enough ammo, have enough guns to prevent uprisings. That's all the Second Amendment was ever about. And it was nothing more or nothing less. Nothing to do but the British are coming or this is kind nothing like that. It was only about protecting against slave uprisings. And I mean, think about that. And that and that tacit understanding, that built-in thing, um, people aren't, uh, you, 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 you don't need a pistol to shoot a deer for food. You don't need a, a, an assault rifle to shoot a deer to eat food. So they changed the narrative to saying, well, government's bad. They're going to come and fuck us over. Not only take our guns away, but they're going to tax us. They're going to this, they're going to that. So they switched from deer to government. They switched the whole rationale at the NRA. So, you know, the, the and this thing, it's, it's going to be a, that the second amendment, that's a tough rock to pry loose in this thing, which is different than the gay marriage or different than the marijuana things. Those are cultural, those things are cultural evolutions that, that happen. And, and that's good. It's all for the good. I mean, William Burroughs was talking about decriminalizing pot like in the 40s. But I mean, it's um, it's just a very difficult and a very dangerous. I mean, I don't like to be an alarmist, but what's going on? It's a very, very dangerous thing. And the young people that should be changing the rules are the ones pulling the triggers, killing everybody. Wow, that's pretty dynamic. So, needless to say, as you said earlier, the pace is accelerating. So, what will be the effect of the pace accelerating? Well, there'll be more people killed. There'll be more shootings, more mass shootings, more suicides, young people at home, in their homes. I mean, guns, um, I guess after that thing I wrote, guns are, it's kind of unavoidable to discuss this at this point, especially it's right in your face in the newspaper and TV all the time. As we speak, something's probably happened, but young people 
having guns. It's the, it's the leading cause of death with young people. Teenagers are guns. Yeah, I saw that uh, report. But let's just assume for the sake of discussion that there won't be laws preventing this. What's going to happen? Do you think everybody's going to get a gun? What's going to happen at schools? What do you think will be the reaction to this action? Well, the reaction from the right is that teachers should be armed. Maybe students should be armed to protect themselves for somebody who's going to come and kill them. That more guns is the answer to guns in places where there could be a, a, a mass gatherings where there could be some kind of a threat. But look, man, these things happen. In, in, in the in my video, the video I made this. It's a this little film art piece thing. It's not art. It's just a film. I mean, there's McDonald's, there's restaurants, there's gas stations. I mean, if you're on the road, man, you pull into a gas station at two in the morning. There's some pretty weird people standing around the pumps, and man, some of these people got guns, and you're just going to get a can a Snickers bar, you know? I just, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know, but uh, mark my mark my words. Uh, this thing, uh, yeah, keep uh, tune in. To, keep tuned in to my 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 little movies. On that note, Eric, I think we're gonna put a stop to it. You're a very erudite, intelligent man. Great to get the history. Uh, you can obviously wrestle with the issues. Thanks so much for taking the time with my audience. Good night. Okay, till next time, this is Bob Left Sets. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.